All right, well, good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12? Now, last week, as we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel, we saw how that the animosity of the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, was really building uh, against Jesus. I mean, it had been simmering for a while, but in chapter 12, it begins to really boil over. And we saw last week how Jesus healed a man with a withered hand who was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And as we said at that time, we believe that the Pharisees planted him there um, as they were trying to catch Jesus in anything. They could accuse him and hopefully to condemn him. Uh, But Jesus went ahead and healed this guy anyway. He knew it was a trap, but it didn't matter to him because his compassion was such that he was not going to let a man who was, uh, whose life was withered in any area, just go on that way if the Lord could help him. And of course, he did help him. He healed him. Well, verse 14 of chapter 12, then reason the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Now, Jesus withdraws himself somewhat from public ministry as the opposition against him began to really rise. It was not out of cowardice he did this. It was out of respect for his father's timing. Whenever Jesus said in the Gospels, my time has not yet come, he was speaking of his father's divine plan. And now that everything in Jesus' ministry was being conducted according to the father's timetable. We're going to see how that on Palm Sunday, we're about maybe six months or so from the cross at this point, So we're going to see how that on Palm Sunday, his time would finally come and he would officially present himself to the nation as their Messiah and King as he rides into Jerusalem on that donkey uh, for the first time allowing himself to be praised and all as Messiah. Of course, he was rejected by the uh, leaders. You say, well, why did he wait till Palm Sunday? Why was that the day? My time has not yet come. Finally, Palm Sunday, his time had come. He officially presents himself to the nation as Messiah and King. Why Palm Sunday? Well, we'll see that when we get there. There's a very specific reason why he waited until that day. But until then, Jesus didn't want to do anything to provoke the scribes and Pharisees before the time was right that they might move too quickly to try and crucify him. I mean, just in the course of normal ministry, these guys were getting more and more upset with him. All right. But he didn't want to just purposely rub it in their faces. Uh, He was working on a timetable. And so he begins to withdraw from the larger population centers now. And he's up in the Galilee, but he begins to draw away from some of the larger towns, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and so on, and begins to withdraw into more of the rural areas until things kind of settle down a little bit. We read then, as he withdrew from there, verse 15 says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known. So the Lord withdraws from the spotlight of the bigger towns, but still continues to preach the gospel and heal anyone who is sick or infirmed. He didn't withdraw from ministry. He still loved people. He still wanted to help people. But he was withdrawing from uh, the intense scrutiny of the Pharisees and scribes who were really looking for anything to, to accuse him with. In fact, in verse 16, we do read, Yet he warned them after he healed everybody, that came to him, he warned them not to make him known. And that would be not to publicly promote him as Messiah. Why was that? Well, 
Just like he didn't want to provoke the Pharisees and scribes to move too quickly to have him crucified, he didn't want to overly excite the crowd with emotion that they would come and take him by force to make him king either. Again, the timetable he was working on. And so he, he told people, look, don't go out and promote me, okay? Uh, just, you know, keep things a little quiet right now. If the people had gotten all kingdom fevered up, you know, and they just got, would have gotten crazy and this thing would have exploded, they would have tried to take him by force. They would have probably tried to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman government. Of course, that would have led to a bloodbath. Jesus did not want that to happen. And so he kind of downshifts, if you will, his ministry into a lower gear, withdraws from the cities, hangs out more in the country, but still ministers to people. Now, Matthew goes on to say, that this too was prophesied concerning the Messiah's ministry. Remember now, as we started the book of Matthew, Matthew wants to present primarily to Israel Jesus as their king and Messiah. He knows as a Levite, though, the only way they're going to receive him is, first of all, if he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah's coming. That's why 17 times in Matthew's Gospel we read that when Jesus did something or somebody tried to do something to Jesus, Matthew will say that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then he'll quote an Old Testament messianic promise, uh, prophecy linking it to Jesus, because in the Jewish mind, if he's going to be the Messiah, he's got to fulfill the prophecies. Well, he does that here. He quotes out of Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. He does so in verses 18 to 21 of Matthew 12. Let me read them to you. Matthew says, Behold, my servant, now he's quoting from Isaiah, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. That happened, of course, at Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the waters, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. That began officially his public ministry. He then goes into Nazareth to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and reads from the scroll of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set the captives free, to open the prison doors, etc. That was a prophecy concerning Messiah that would take place after he was anointed by the Spirit to conduct his ministry. So the Father is saying, I put my Spirit upon him. I will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to be one of these loud, raucous kind of person, screaming and yelling. Maybe John was like that in the wilderness. Of course, in the wilderness, you had to scream a little bit for people to hear you. But Jesus was going to be mild-mannered. He's not going to be out there screaming like a crazy man in the streets, okay, quarreling with everybody. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Now, again, this quote from Isaiah, first of all, speaks of the gentle and compassionate character of Messiah's ministry. Listen, at his first coming, at his first coming. And at this point, he's already now beginning to turn to the Gentiles more and more. In fact, we saw at the end of chapter 11, he was rejected by the Jewish leadership. He then begins to turn to individuals, Jew and Gentile to offer them the kingdom individually, which would come into their hearts when they received the king. And eventually when the king returned to establish his outward kingdom, they would be a part of it, of course. So he's turning now away from the nation as a whole and turning towards Gentiles more and more with his offer of salvation. 
uh, invited them to be members of God's kingdom. Uh, that must have been shocking for the Jewish leadership because they always thought the kingdom was for the Jewish people exclusively. You had to be a, son, a child of Abraham and so on. But now the Lord is turning to Gentiles more and more. He's offering to them. These were the outcasts, guys. If you were a Jew, all your life you grew up with a very negative concept of Gentiles. In fact, the rabbis even went as far as to teach that God didn't love the Gentiles. God never intended to really save Gentiles as a whole. They, they were just made to fuel the fires of hell. That was your mindset if you were a Jew. And now here is the Messiah, so-called. They, many of them don't believe he's Messiah. We know, he, of course, Jesus is Messiah. He begins to turn now to Gentiles, outcasts. Those, as Paul said in Ephesians, were alienated from the covenants of God, but now are being brought near. And this was a big difference from the uh, Pharisees' ministry, if I can call it a ministry. They didn't really have much of a ministry to Gentiles. If a Gentile came to the outer court of the temple and wanted to find out more about the God of Israel, some of them would convert. They would proselytize to Judaism, and that was great. But for the most part, in the Jewish thinking or the leadership's thinking, you know, that's wonderful, but they're second-class citizens in the kingdom to the Jewish people. See? There was always that distinction. Always that separation. And it did manifest itself in the ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees towards the Gentiles. Again, if I can call it a ministry, they just constantly put down Gentiles, quarreling with them and uh, railing against them in the streets as objects of God's wrath. I mean, that's how they handle Gentiles. But the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah said, no, the Messiah is going to be gentle. And here Jesus is opening his arms to them and inviting them to become members of the kingdom, to be saved, and so on. That was radical. I'm sure that the Pharisees and scribes were absolutely appalled. God didn't love Gentiles, okay? He only loves, you know, the children of Abraham. And that wasn't true, of course. When God gave the prophecy to Abraham, the Messiah was going to come from his own descendants. He said, and in you, Abraham, that is in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It wouldn't just be the Jewish people. And Jesus came with a message of hope and love. And that's what this idea of bruised reed and smoking flax are all about. What it's saying about the Messiah is that those whose lives have been kind of beaten up, likened to a bruised reed, they can come to him and know that Jesus Christ wouldn't break them by laying upon them the heavy burden of the law, which we've talked about, right? One of the reasons the Gentiles felt so alienated from the God of Israel was because of the, uh, the law that God gave through Moses. And the Jewish people taught that the only way to get to God, to heaven, was to keep these laws. Of course, the Jewish people couldn't even keep all those laws. We've talked about that. What a heavy burden they were. And so Jesus Christ is turning now to any Jews who would listen. And the only Jews who would really listen at this point were the ones who were the most overt sinners. I mean, if you're a Jew... And you're a prostitute or a tax collector or some other undesirable of society where all the good folks, quote unquote, the Pharisees and all reject you. And you feel like there's no way to God because I could never measure up to the life that these Pharisees live. And now Jesus is turning towards those Jews and even the Gentiles with a message of hope and love. I'll tell you what, this was revolutionary. It was revolutionary. If your life is beaten up by sin, if you're a bruised reed. You can come to me. I'm not going to crush you by dumping all these heavy laws on you. Just believe on me for salvation. If you're like a smoking flax, what is a smoking flax? A wick, basically. 
a wick that had come to the end of itself and was no longer able to sustain a flame, but only a little ember at the tip which allowed it to smolder. If your life has come to the end, where you seem like you're all used up and there's no hope left for you, you're at the end of your ropes, we'll say it's how we would say it. And you think it's too late for you to come to me. And your faith is weak because you don't think God wants you. I mean, you've lived your whole life really apart from God living in sin. Jesus says, I'm not going to stomp you out like someone would stomp out a smoking flax. I'm going to fan that faith. I'm going to tell you how much God loves you. I'm going to teach you with compassion and kindness until that faith is nurtured into a flame again and you can re- will receive me and so on. It's just a beautiful picture of the Messiah coming and reaching out to the most hopeless and helpless people in society and saying, look, I don't care what the world says about you. I don't care what the Pharisees say about you. I want you in my kingdom. And this was his ministry to the lost at his first coming. We read in verse 28 to 30 of chapter 11, where Jesus is now turning to individuals, Jews and Gentiles, with the offer of the kingdom, with salvation. And he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All you who are weighed down with all of these rules and laws that nobody could ever even learn, let alone live in their lives. He said, come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The way to salvation is a road that I've already walked. I paid the price. You come to me and I'll give you salvation freely. And then in John 3, verses 16 to 17, we read, For God so loved the world, not just the Jews, but the whole world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell but have everlasting life. Listen, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came not to condemn the world the first time. He came to offer the people of this world hope and salvation. Again, Matthew 12, verses 19 and 20, we read, He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. Listen, till he sends forth justice to victory. And that, folks, speaks of his second coming. Of course, at Jesus' second coming, he is going to come in judgment. The first time he came in grace, okay, grace and truth characterize his ministry. When he comes the second time, he will come bringing vengeance upon rebels who refused to receive him as Lord and Savior. And he will purge the earth of the rebels before he establishes a kingdom of righteousness. See, the first time he came as the sweet, gentle, meek, and mild Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next time he comes, he's going to come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We see how that he came riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding a what? Donkey. What's he going to come riding when he comes back to the earth a second time? A white charger, right? In those days, from what I understand, if a king rode up to a city on a donkey, he was saying, look, we want to make a treaty with you. We want to have peace with you. We don't want to fight. If he came riding up on a white charger, you had problems. Jesus came the first time riding on a donkey, saying, 
you know what? I don't want to go to war with you. I want to have peace with you through the blood of my cross is what he was saying. But for those who reject, he is going to come the second time. And he's going to come riding a white horse. And then Jesus will no longer be the Savior, but he will be the judge. And Jesus Christ will only be one of those two things to every person who has ever lived. He'll either be your loving Savior if you receive him now, or someday he'll be your righteous judge. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. So we see him reaching out to the least of society, the hopeless and the helpless. Now we begin to transition then, starting in verse 22 into a new section. We read in verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And so you, you see now, okay, things are heating up even more. The animosity on the part of the Pharisees is really starting to come to a head. When Jesus healed this demon-possessed, blind, and mute man, the crowds began to seriously wonder. Now, not everyone had made their mind up about Jesus as of yet. You would think they would have, but there were still some undecideds running around. Okay, I don't know where these folks live, but there's always undecideds running around somewhere and about everything. So Jesus had presented himself pretty well as Messiah, Yet some people weren't really sure about him yet. Now, now it might be as he's moving out into the rural areas, these folks had never really had contact with the Lord. He stayed in some of the larger areas to minister to as many people as possible. It could be they're getting, they've heard stories, but now they're seeing with their own eyes the things that he, he is doing. And so now they're wondering. We, you know, we've heard the stories, and now we're seeing with our own eyes. Could this be the son of David? In other words, the Messiah. Well, when the Pharisees heard that, they exploded in a rage. And made an outrageous accusation against Jesus. That his miracles weren't being done by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebub, who was actually a pagan deity considered to be the prince of the demons. In other words, they're saying his power was done, was, was the source of his power was the devil himself. However, by making an accusation like that, the Pharisees really put themselves between a rock and a hard place, you might say. I mean, Jesus obviously had supernatural power. That was Nobody could dispute that. Uh, this was not just a uh, simple illusions or parlor tricks of some magician. These were real miracles. I mean, walking on water, turning water into wine, raising the dead, uh, healing lepers. I mean, come on. They couldn't deny something miraculous was going on. That only left then two choices. Either Jesus' power came from God or it came from Satan. Well, they already said... He was not from God. So the only option that they were left with was to say that he was from the devil. That he was from the devil. Verse 25, But when Jesus knew their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here the Lord Jesus Christ does something he seldom did. He defends his ministry and the source of its power to his critics. 
And Jesus gave three arguments to answer the accusation that he was working under Satan's power. First of all, he said if he were casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan would be working against himself, verses 25 and 6 tell us. And the idea is why would Satan let someone who was working for him cast a demon out of a man and free that individual who was already under Satan's control? Why would Satan do that? What would be the point of that? If Jesus Christ was actually working for the devil, why would the devil let him cast demons out of people when the devil has got control of those folks? That didn't make sense. To do so would divide Satan's kingdom and eventually bring it to an end, Jesus said. What's he doing with them? He's just what? Reasoning with them, right? Based on simple logic. You know, in Isaiah chapter 1, God said to the nation of Israel, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. He's just saying, look, think about it. Didn't I make you wise enough to understand that you can't have creation without a creator? Any more you can have a building without an architect and a construction workers and so on. I mean, our faith is built on evidence. Peter said it's built on many infallible proofs. So what we do is we follow where the evidence leads and where it stops and we take the next step, which is faith, toward where the evidence has already taken us. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's just where our understanding of God leads off. The rest we take by faith. But when a person looks into this world and rejects God, even though God's handiwork is everywhere, the creation declares his glory. The heavens show forth his handiwork. They speak a universal language of the people of this world that God exists. He's real. And God is saying, look, you're never going to believe me with 100% certainty. But you know what? Your faith just has to be reasonable without a reasonable doubt. And come, let us reason together, right? And here was a group of guys who would not really think logically because of their own pride. Secondly, Jesus indicted the Pharisees when he asked them about the Jewish exorcists back then in their day, which he calls your sons and daughters. Of course, there were a lot of Jews who exorcised demons out of people based on the power of God. And so Jesus is saying, in essence, if you believe other exorcists cast out demons by the power of God, by what logic do you say that I cast them out by the power of Satan? Again, that is not logical. In other words, the Lord is accusing them of just blind prejudice fueled by their own hatred of Jesus Christ. They didn't want to hear his message because it stepped on their toes. I mean, if you spend your whole life trying to be so good, you earn heaven, and now Jesus is not a free gift. Anybody who wants it can have it by faith. Well, as a Pharisee, that really rubs you the wrong way, doesn't it? So they hated him for that. I mean, he was taking all their glory and boasting away. And they didn't want that. They wanted to boast in their good works. In other words, the Lord is accusing them, again, of prejudice fueled by blind hatred and pride. There's a lot of people who want to write off Christianity based on blind prejudice and pride. It's not that they've really studied the evidence, but they make these ridiculous accusations against Christians. You'll hear them that, you know, all Christians are hypocrites. All Christians, you know, they're, they're evil. Because, you know, we stand up against things the world embraces. Homosexuality, abortion, etc. Immorality of all different kinds. Uh, and because of this, people claim, some people, that, you know, Christians are just hypocrites. They're just evil people. I love it when, uh, when people say that um, Islam 
is a religion of peace and love. And Christianity is full of haters. Don't you love that? Is that a reasonable statement? Folks, it wasn't Baptists and Presbyterians that flew those planes into those buildings 11 years ago. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many peaceful Muslims. But it's not because of Islam. It's in spite of Islam they're peaceful and loving. Islam is a warrior faith. Islam is all about destroying the infidels. Christianity and, you know, you've all seen what's been going on in the Middle East, all these riots, what they tried to say was the result of this goofy trailer to this video uh, this character in California made, you know, which could have slammed the prophet Muhammad, you know, and all of a sudden uh, the Muslim world's in an uproar, people are dying, you know, and they tried to blame it on this uh, this trailer to this video until they found out that this was premeditated. It, it predated the, the, the release of this trailer for this movie and so on. And the idea is that, you know, that if, if anybody dares to say anything against Muhammad, the Muslim world erupts, people die, our ambassador was killed and so on. So people tend to leave Islam alone. They, they don't want to pick a fight with Muslims. Again, many of them are very kind and peaceful people. But there is a big chunk that are radicals. Then I just heard, read the other day, several years ago, you saw how this one artist, quote unquote, submerged the crucifix with Jesus on it into a vat of his own urine and put it on a wall and called it art. And all the art galleries wanted to, to show it. What's well, coming back to New York? I don't hear the State Department apologizing to Christians. I don't hear Hillary Clinton getting on the radio at the TV and going, you know, this is an atrocity. This was horrible. We, this is reprehensible. We denounce this. No. Because they know that Christians will never rise up and kill people because our religion is a peaceful religion. Why? Because the Prince of Peace lives in our hearts. Now, I pray for Muslims. God is doing a work in the Muslim world like you cannot believe. And we pray for the Muslim people to be delivered out of the lies of Islam. It's just amazing to me, though, how you have people today... Their whole thinking is inverted. They take a peaceful religion like Christianity and make it the ultimate evil and a, and a hateful religion like Islam and elevate it to a status of peace and love. And I look at that and go, are you kidding me? It's because, as God said through Paul the Apostle, if you do not want to receive the love of the truth that you might be saved, God will allow you to be, to be deceived by demonic lies. And that's going to give rise to chapter 13 when the Lord begins to go underground or cryptic with his teaching. He starts teaching in parables because the people had heard the truth. They rejected the truth. And if you don't want the truth, you don't deserve the truth is the idea. So Jesus spoke in parables so that only those with the right heart could understand. We're seeing it in our society today. And number three, he just wanted to reason with them by, that by driving out demons, he was proving that he was greater than Satan. No, I'm not working for Satan. Okay. Your kids exercise demons by the power of God. What makes you think? I don't use the power of God, number two. And number three, look, I'm not working for the devil, but if I cast out demons, if I cast out, if I set people free who are under the bondage of the devil, that means I'm stronger than the devil, right? In other words, if I'm able to go into, the, into Satan's realm, which he called the strong man's house, the demonic world we live in, Jesus came into this world to set the captives free, right? And if I'm strong enough to do that, and by the way, my ministry right now, that's just a little preview of what's coming. I'm coming to bring a kingdom one day where I'm going to replace Satan's kingdom of darkness entirely with the kingdom of light and life. You want to be a part of that kingdom? Come to me right now, and I'll receive you. But if I'm strong enough 
to go into Satan's territory and set the captives free. I'm stronger than Satan. And so I bound the strong man, Jesus is saying. Let me um, just quickly um, touch on something that I want to just, you know, because this idea that you can't enter a strong man's house until you first bind the strong man. Everyone knew the strong man refers to Satan. And I want to just touch briefly on this idea of binding Satan. There's a misconception floating around the church today that um, we Christians can bind the devil with our words. It comes out of the Word of Faith movement, which believes that there is power in the spoken word, and that by speaking the words, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus, we can actually tie the devil up, quote-unquote, with our words and keep him from doing all his dirty stuff in our lives and messing with us and messing with our families and so on. But we have to bind him with the power of our words. This is very big in the Word of Faith movement, which is millions and millions strong in America and even across the world, of course. So you have a lot of folks in the Word of Faith movement. And God bless them. They just want to do what, what they believe is right. They want to stop Satan's influence and control over people. I applaud that. I don't think they're going about it biblically, though. The idea, though, is if we could really bind the devil with our words, if we could really tie him up by saying, I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus, and you've got millions of folks all over the country who are involved in this teaching, who believe in it, and who are binding Satan with their words all throughout the day, I want to know, how does he keep getting loose? Because he keep, keeps messing with me, and I'm sure you also. I mean, what kind of a knot you tie him with? If it's a slip knot, stop it. He's getting out. I mean, if this is true, look, if that's your concept of spiritual warfare, if that's your concept on how you fight and win spiritual warfare with verbal formulas like that, let me just say to you, you're going to be very frustrated in your walk. You're going to be very fruitless and defeated in your Christian life. You do not conquer the devil like that. Of course, we can pray that God would protect us or deliver us from the devil's oppression and persecution. That's legitimate. Also, we can pray that God would use us to spread the gospel and to expand his kingdom on earth through our ministries, which will take territory away from the devil and lessen his influence in this world. That's also legitimate. But if you think you can bind Satan with your words, as if you're tying him up and making him powerless to carry out his evil deeds, you're very much mistaken. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. And let me read to you what Paul the Apostle said. He says, starting in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure. Now he's talking about all the abundance of revelations that God had given to him. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And so Paul says, you know, because of all the revelations God gave me, lest I be exalted above measure, he allowed a thorn in the flesh to be given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, Paul knows that this thorn, that this constant thing that's attacking him is of the devil. He knows that. He's not guessing. He knows it. He said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, if this binding of Satan was a legitimate doctrine that Paul knew about, 
He knew he was being buffeted by the devil. Why didn't Paul say, the devil was coming against me, but you know what I did? I bound him in the name of Jesus, boy. I told him, Satan, I bind you. And he left me alone. See, that's what you got to do. But he didn't say that. He said, look, I went to the Lord three times and asked the Lord if he would take this from me. And God said, no, Paul, I've allowed it because you need to be kept humble because when you're weak, then you're strong and I receive the most glory. So Paul says, well, fine. If that's your will, Lord, then I'll take pleasure in my needs, infirmities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. I can just hear him saying that to a word of faith pastor and being rebuked. What do you mean you take pleasure in infirmity? I bind that stuff. That's not of God, infirmities and persecutions and so on. No, listen to the Apostle Paul, what he is saying here. The reason Paul didn't use this doctrine is because it isn't real. It's not true. Satan can't do anything unless God allows it. You don't have to read the book of Job very far to find that out. That Satan couldn't do anything to Job unless he got permission from God first. Now, some people have a real problem with that idea. Because if that's true, and Satan can only attack me if God lets him, and I am being attacked, and I do suffer infirmities, and so on and so forth, then why does God let him attack me? If he has to get permission from God before he can do it, he's doing it. God must have allowed it. Why is God allowing that? Is God not a good and loving God? Well, of course he is. We just read one of the reasons why he allows it in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. That my grace might be sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Because when you're weak, you're trusting in me for your strength and not in your own strength. And then you're really strong. Keep you humble. Number one. Number two, in Romans 8, verses 28 and 29, Paul said, All things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, what Paul is saying is, look, everything that happens in our lives, God allows for his purposes. What are his purpose? To conform us to the image of Christ. And guys, there are some things in life that there are some qualities God wants to build in us that cannot be built any other way except through adversity. Tribulation. I mean, that's just the way it is. You say, well, yeah, but I didn't sign up for that when I got saved. Nobody told me I was going to be persecuted and so on and so forth. I was promised Cadillacs and fancy houses and big bank accounts. Well, you got sold a bill of goods. Because Jesus said, if you want to be one of my disciples, you better count the cost. There's a cross in it. And to be one of my disciples, you better understand. You've got to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me all the way to Calvary. You've got to be crucified to self. Hey, it's not an easy thing. But if you want to be a follower of Christ, you've got to follow him all the way. He went all the way to the cross. He said, I don't do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do always those things that please my Father. I understand my life is not my own anymore. It's like saying to God, Lord, I didn't sign up for this. The Lord says, well, you know what? When you gave your heart to me, yes, you did. I told you that my purpose was to conform you to the image of my son, who was a suffering servant. That's why James says in James 1, verses 2 to 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are about God perfecting us. 
So in that regard, the reason that God does not stop Satan from getting at us altogether is because Satan is actually serving the purposes of God. And God is wanting to teach us how to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. He wants to teach us how to hold up uh, under pressure. In other words, to persevere. He wants to conform us to Jesus' image. Now, having said that, I know that some of you might be thinking to yourself, so what you're saying then is, when I am being persecuted or oppressed by the devil, I shouldn't do anything. Just accept it. Praise the Lord, you know. Well, no, I mean, you know, there are some things that God wants you to pray about because he wants to deliver you. Paul prayed three times, right? He was looking for God to deliver him. And when God didn't deliver him after the third time of prayer, what did Paul say? Okay, I guess this is one of those things where God wants to just teach me some things. Now, our first, (laughs) our default setting, if I could put it that way, is to pray to get out of this stuff, right? Because we're not... Idiots, we don't want to, you know, praise the Lord, I'm being persecuted again. Hey, look, I don't like persecution any more than anybody else does. And I'll pray, God, if the devil is just trying to hassle me to keep me away from doing what you've called me to do, Lord, I pray you break the oppression. I pray you deliver me. After you pray that a few times and nothing's happening, you know, maybe you should just start saying to yourself, you know what, Lord, if this is something you want me just to receive and to grow through, then I welcome it. Turn to First Peter 5 as we bring this so close. And let's pick up in verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, where Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You don't have to just roll over and take it. Resist him. Pray, right? Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. No, when we are being attacked or persecuted, we don't just roll over and say, okay, devil, just go at it. Beat me to death. We resist him in the faith. We come like Paul did to God. I prayed three times the Lord would deliver me. And it was only after God says, no, Paul, I'm allowing this for a reason that Paul thanked God. Look, when you're going through a difficult time and you know it's persecution from the devil, you get on your knees, you ask God to deliver you. But at one point, if he doesn't, you embrace that like Paul did. Say, I would rather than glory in my infirmities, persecutions and so on, for Christ's sake, because when I'm weak, then I am strong. We are commanded to resist the devil, but we are never commanded, listen, to bind the devil. Never. You resist the devil every day by putting on the whole armor of God, as Paul said in Ephesians 6. Drawing close to the Lord, staying on your knees in prayer and in the word of God. That's how you resist the devil. You fill yourself with God, with the Holy Spirit, by being a submissive vessel, sanctified and and fit for his use. That's how you resist the devil. We're never called to bind the devil. And yet some would say, well, then why did Jesus teach that whatever we bound on earth, we'd be bound in heaven? And whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, you've got to understand the context. That comes out, of Matthew, comes out of Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus has just gotten done asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And, so, and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or Elijah, or Jeremiah. Well, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter. In the Greek, he said, you are, a, you are Petras, small stone. And upon this Petra, this huge bedrock, I'm going to build my church. What 
huge bedrock. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is not just the latest reincarnation of some avatar that's come down through history, a Buddha and others like him. No, he is the, the Son of God who came down and became one of us to die for our sins. He is unique. That's the truth that the church of Jesus Christ is built on. And Jesus went on to say, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, he's not just talking to Peter, although primarily right now he is, but that would be then expanded to include all the disciples of Christ. In what way? That we are to go out into all the world with the gospel. And if people accept Christ, then we are to declare to them that they have now been loosed. In other words, in the rabbinic mind, the rabbis had a term. When they would say something is rejected, they would say it is bound. When they would say something is accepted, they say, would say it is loosed. So Jesus Christ is not talking about binding and loosing the devil. He is saying when you go out to the world and you preach the gospel, those that receive it, you can declare them loosed from the power of the devil. Those that reject it, they are still bound and rejected from the kingdom. Look, in Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus Christ, through the blood of his cross, disarmed principalities and powers, demons, fallen angels. And the word disarmed there, guys, is a Greek word that means to take away the power of, to break the strength of. Listen to me. Jesus bound the strong man, Satan, at the cross spiritually, which allowed the gospel to go forward with great power throughout this world. The devil is going to be bound for a thousand years, literally, during the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 3 uh, 3 tells us. And eventually the devil will be bound eternally in the lake of fire, as Revelation 20, verse 10 tells us. So the devil's day is coming. Now, we're done, but I want to end with verse 30. Jesus makes this statement. And remember now, he has just gotten done dealing with a group of ultra-religious individuals who thought they were working for God, but didn't realize they were working against the purposes of God. And I'm thinking of the Pharisees. And then he makes this statement. He said in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Look, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Either you are for him or you are against him. Hey, I'm an atheist. (laughs) I'm not for anybody. I don't believe in anything. It doesn't matter. Someday even you will bow the knee to Christ and confess he is Lord of all. But anyone who is not actively with Christ, in other words, has received him as Lord and Savior, is against Christ. I don't care how religious you are. If you're not gathering, in other words, if you're not working to build this kingdom by gathering souls, you are automatically scattering. You say, I don't know, how's that, how does that work? I'm not doing anything. You're living in rebellion, aren't you? If you're not haven't received Christ and you're not working for God's glory, you're serving your own purposes and living for your own glory. And that rebellious attitude and lifestyle is rubbing off on others. You're scattering people from God just because of the rebellious way you're living. And I'm thinking of your family primarily, your kids, grandkids. That's a pretty big thing to think about. Look, Jesus Christ is inviting us to come. He is going to bring a kingdom to this world when he comes the second time and he's gathering right now the citizens of that kingdom. It's up to you. You can receive him or you can reject him. That's completely your choice. But either he will be your loving savior today or he will be your righteous judge when he comes on that day. 
And I'll tell you what, I don't want to stand before Jesus in my own self-righteousness on that day. I want to be clothed with the royal robes of his righteousness, having his blood wash me clean. And so that's the lesson. And it doesn't matter how religious you are, it matters what's in your heart. May God give you the grace to make that decision right now, if you haven't, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you can be with him, working to gather those into the kingdom for him, and when the kingdom comes, live forever in that kingdom. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, that you are so loving, so kind and merciful, that our Savior came and he opened his arms to sinners, many that society had written off, inviting them to become part of your kingdom, as he does today still. And Father, we just pray that you would give us grace as your people to not do anything, Lord, that would in any way give people a bad look at you. It would give people a bad idea of what you're all about. But Lord, give us grace that we would represent you properly and faithfully. Your coming is near, Lord. We want to be used to gather. We don't want to do anything that would cause people to be scattered from you. So, Lord, we thank you. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.